Let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 12, please. We are going through probably one of the most neglected areas in the church today. And this is either because of abuse and fanaticism, or it's because of such conservatism, desiring to look holy, that for some reason we don't think the Holy Spirit still works today. Now, I'm not accusing anyone of that. Please understand. But those tend to be the extremes that the pendulum swings when we talk about the idea of spiritual gifts. And what we find is actually there's a balance right in the middle. Now, before we go any further, one thing that I have forgotten, Corey and Marsha, I apologize, but Corey and Marsha are brand new grandparents. I forgot about that. And so we actually have, we actually have a picture, and it's so cute it's sick. Can you bring that up, Dave? That baby's huge. So yeah, Ezra, amazing stuff. So if you get the opportunity, please congratulate them on that. That's fantastic. When we talk about the gifts in the body, we're talking about how do you serve God right, correctly. And I think for a lot of us, that's our heart. I just want to do what the Lord wants, right? I mean, I would hope so. You know, what, what, what does God want from my life? That's what I want to do. I think one of the reasons why we feel that way is because, let's be honest, we know that God is good. There's no doubt about that. He's proven that over and over. He's proven that his way is best. He's proven that his word is trustworthy. He's proven that anything that we tackle in life, he's actually addressed either in detail or in principle to give us the answer. And so if that is the case, and all that he's done to bring us to himself through Jesus Christ, how do we serve him correctly, biblically, faithfully? The Bible doesn't leave us out in the cold about that. It actually spells it out pretty well. But if we're not willing to take the time to mull it over and to ask the question, what does God's word say? And how do I incorporate that in my life and be trusting of him to do so? That's usually where we have the waffle effect. Our lives won't be changed. We will not be a spiritual body. Spiritual gifts have to be exercised spiritually. Now I want to start with looking at a really great model of how all of this works. Uh, Chuck Swindoll has a small study book on spiritual gifts. I found this and I thought, man, this is great. And so Emily was kind enough to figure out how to scan it in the computer because I'm completely illiterate about that. The next one, the building. There we go. I think that's the best way to understand it. The foundation is the Lord Jesus Christ. It will always be the foundation. It will never change. Is this on? Jesus, hello. There you go. There you go. Awesome. On top of that, we have the two offices that have already passed off the scene that were filled with revelation. Not the book of Revelation. The idea that God is revealing himself because the New Testament was not completed at the time that this was going on. So you have apostles, send out ones, and you have prophets, those who are revealing truth. The three pillars that stand in place 
in order to uphold their teaching. Founded upon it, but is the catalyst to see what is the, the explosive service that is to happen in the church. Our evangelists, pastor teachers, and teachers. In fact, I would scrub that teachers out there, but evangelist, pastor, and teachers. Evangelists, obviously, for the sharing of the gospel and teaching others how to share the gospel, encouraging the sharing of the gospel, praying as far as the church needing to share the gospel and that God would provide open doors. Pastors, for the sake of being amongst the people of God in order to love them and to minister to them and to lead them into the greenest pastures possible. And teachers, because the Word of God is a big, thick book. And we need help. Every bit of us. So there are certain people who have been called to those three offices that are currently relevant in church history. The whole point of this is to get into the equipping of the saints. If you are an evangelist, pastor, or teacher, you have an equipping responsibility and you have certainly been given one of the five speaking gifts. Those are for the purpose of equipping the saints. For what reason? Number one, to do the work of the service. Number two, to build up the body. So many people, and I'm so thankful that that was not the case here, and it still is not the case now that I am here. So many people expect that the reason we hired a pastor is so that people could get evangelized and people could get discipled and people could get cared for and he's the one who does it all. (laughs) And that's not the case. It's not. The work of the ministry is the body's responsibility. Do I have a responsibility to evangelize? Absolutely. Why would I not want to? By me keeping my mouth shut, do I dare keep people out of heaven? That's insane. So I need to be sharing the gospel. Is it my job to pastor and to bear burdens and to try to encourage and lead people into better ways of living? Absolutely. But I'm not the only person that can do that. Am I here to teach the word of God? Absolutely. But guess what? We also have other teachers in this church as well. All of this comes to equipping you, why? So that what is taught in doctrine becomes reality in application. Life changes. We should no longer be able to go on the same way, having learned what we learn from God's Word. God's Word was not meant to fill heads. It was meant to change lives. And the way that God does it is from the inside out. It's always breaking away the callousness of heart and the stubbornness of ways. Or to use an Old Testament term, the stiff-neckedness. Penetrate to a point to say, why don't you look for where I'm working and come join me in how I'm working? You only know that by being sensitive to the Word of God, receiving the teaching of the Word of God, and then seeking to apply it to your life. When that happens, ministry is done, people are built up. And it starts a cycle. I think a good question to ask is, is where are we in that cycle? That's something for us to be discerning about. If you have your papers, and if you don't, let me know and I'll get you some. But your papers with your line designations. Does anybody need those papers? Does anybody need those? Okay. Zach, are you feeling agile this morning? No, sir. Anybody over here need them? Want to make sure everybody's got them? 
You guys are gracious. They're all on Zach's side. That's great. So if you need a handout from now on, you sit over there, right? That's how it goes. Yes. You need one? Okay. I thought you were just pulling my leg. It's all right. Here you are, sir. Here we go. Oh, there we go. See, you guys didn't let me off the hook that easily. There we go. There we go. Awesome. All right. Last week we looked at wisdom. And wisdom was D. So if you, and I forgot it until the very end. Some of you might not have heard that. But underline D, D is wisdom. The next one, E, is knowledge. That is the fifth of the speaking gifts. We have, I'll go ahead and give you A if you want as well. A is preaching or prophecy if you want to put that. You have all the speaking gifts in line. So you should have preaching, exhortation, teaching, wisdom, knowledge. Today we're going to be looking at knowledge. Let's start in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. I want to read a little bit. I want to show you a couple of things just to remind us. And then I think it's important for us to start connecting some things and, and, and talk a little bit about some pitfalls that may... In verse 4, chapter 12, verse 4, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries, and the same Lord, the Lord Jesus. And there are varieties of effects, of workings, ways of doing those ministries with those gifts. But the same God who works all things in all persons. But... To each one is given the manifestation. That word, manifestation, mark it. It means something is disclosed. It means something is revealed. Okay, pulling the, pulling the curtain back to see what's back there. It's the same word that is used for the title of the book of Revelation. There's a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And this is the purpose of spiritual gifts. By gifting everyone in the body, and if you are a believer in Christ, you have a spiritual gift. There's not one believer in Christ that doesn't. You may not know what it is. You may have a couple, maybe even three. Maybe you're a multitasker and good googly, that's amazing, okay? But maybe you're not. Maybe you've just got one. You might not know what it is, or maybe you do know what it is, but you don't know how to get involved in the church with it. We're going to deal with all of that, I promise you, okay? But the idea is, number one, it's the Spirit manifesting this supernatural power through you. Don't be scared of that. We shouldn't. He already lives in there. You want to, you want to get neurotic about something, get neurotic about that. Everything else is downhill from there, right? He wants to just show himself to people. Why? Because he wants to build up the body. It's for the common good. I benefit by your spiritual gift. You benefit from my spiritual gift. And when that happens, we just go up. That's what, We can't help but to do that. Now, he gives a listing here. And this listing doesn't seem to be exact. These are the only spiritual gifts that exist. He seems to be throwing them out there as they're coming to mind. Because his whole point is, is regardless of what the gift is, the Spirit is the one who's united them all. They all come from the same power source. You don't manifest a weird spirit, and then I have the Holy Spirit. That's not how it works. It's all from the Holy Spirit. So he says, verse 8, For to one's given the word of wisdom, what we looked at last week, through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by one Spirit, 
and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. Here it is, verse 11, very important. Verse 7, verse 11 are the real bookends of what matters here. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to only cool people, individually just as He wills. Is that what it says? No, it says that the Holy Spirit desires to distribute gifts as He pleases to every single person. So, it's the manifestation of the Spirit in every single person by at least one gift that is given and the whole that would best be utilized in order to build up the body because it all goes in that direction. Everybody with me? Okay, great. So now, the gift of knowledge. How should we understand the gift of knowledge? First, I want to go through some scriptures and show the first mention of it. And it's coupled right after wisdom. Okay? Now, I will go ahead and tell you, because of what the gift of knowledge is, it needs wisdom, it needs exhortation, it needs teaching, and it needs preaching, one of those four plugged into that one, in order for the body to get the full benefit out of it. Now, I've, I've, I've wrestled, the, the, the hardest thing I've wrestled with all week is to not say the word nerd, okay? And I know that sounds strange, and I'm not trying to down anybody whatsoever. The people with the gift of knowledge, the word of knowledge, they are the, the Holy Spirit nerds. They are. And they are some of the greatest people. Because they are the people that are willing to get in there and sort through all the hard and difficult things. And I could not do what I do because I don't have that gift if I couldn't draw off of that stuff. How many of you have walked by my office? Okay. How many of you walked by the library? Because technically that's Pastor Steve's office. Okay. You walk through and you just glance in and you go, where did all these books come from? How many trees have died here, right? Kind of thing. The reason why you need so many books is because I'm so dumb. That's what it boils down to. Now you say, oh, that's not, I don't have those gifts. And so I've got to read and read and read and study from all of these people who have the gift of knowledge in order to put it all together to use the gifts of preaching and teaching to get that knowledge information in a way to you so that it can hopefully be a little bit better understood and applied. That's the goal. The knowledge are the behind-the-scenes, task-oriented people. Now, I want to show you some things because knowledge is brought up here in an interesting form. If you turn over to chapter 13, we're just going to look at some things, and I don't want us to get too caught up in what's going on. I just want you to see the fact that Paul is using knowledge to prove some points, and when we go verse by verse through it, we're going to see those. In chapter 13, verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all what? Knowledge. And if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. Now, we're going to get to that, but look what he says there. Prophecy, that's one of the ones we saw on the list we're dealing with. Mysteries, we didn't have that. Knowledge, we have that. And faith, we have that. Those Three out of those four are spiritual gifts that he brought up beforehand. Look down at verse 8. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, he brings it up again, they will be done away. If there are tongues, that's another gift we saw, they will cease. If there is what? Knowledge, it will be done away. So notice he brings it in again, 
Putting it on prophecy, tongues, knowledge. He brings up the gift again. Verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. Notice he brings up prophecy and knowledge again. But when the perfect comes, we'll have a good time talking about that, the partial will be done away. Notice that he's using knowledge later on as an example of a spiritual gift going on to prove some points that he's making. Now look over at chapter 14. Look at verses 5 and 6. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but... Now stop. What was the problem in Corinth? They were all trying to do what? They were all trying to speak in tongues. Did they all have the gift of tongues? No. No, They didn't all have the gift. So Paul's saying, it would have been really nice if all of you could do this, but look what he says. But even more that you would prophesy. We'll talk about what that is later. And greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may receive, what is it? Edifying. It has to be for the common good. Notice he keeps punching these themes over and over. The common good of the church, the building up of the body is what it's about. Verse 6, but now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of what? Knowledge, there it is again, or of prophecy or of teaching. In other words, tongues isn't going to cut it. It's got to be something that's understood and intelligible so that people are built up by what they hear. Notice that he uses knowledge over and over and over as an example. Now, a couple of definitions for knowledge. I don't expect you to write these down, but if you want to look at them later. But I actually had to find some quotes that were going on with this. Uh, This is a quote by some teaching that I have from Rodmacher about this. A person who has an insatiable desire to study exhaustively every facet of a subject, leaving no stone unturned, and to bring it forward and to organize it and put it forth in such a manageable fashion that someone else can take it and use it. Did everybody see the, so someone else can take it and use it? Why? Because if this person, man or woman, doesn't matter, starts a Sunday school class, you're going to have four people in it. That's why. Because they're going to sit there and go the whole time and just drool on themselves, okay? There's so much knowledge coming out of this. And they probably don't have a good way of presenting it unless they have another spiritual gift of one of the other four speaking gifts. But this is scouring resources and scouring the Word of God and able to systematize it in such a way as to where it's very manageable for people to walk through. Another one by Pete's favorite person, Arnold Fruchtenbaum. So it is the ability to be able to comprehend the Word of God and to see unifying principles in the Word of God. It is the ability to put the doctrines of Scripture into a meaningful whole. Pretty clear, right? Pretty clear what the gift of knowledge is? Let me give you this. If you've got your handout, your bulletin, you've got one of your little papers in there. We've been handing out little papers as far as what are the various qualities that someone would have. We bring that up, the spiritual gift of knowledge. Can you bring that up, Dave? Spiritual gift of knowledge, there you go. The God-given ability to arrange the facts of Scripture, to categorize these into principles, and to communicate them to repeated or familiar situations. Here are some of the qualities. Now, now real quick, think about if this is you. If it is, it's a really good thing, because we need you. We, We... 
every gift is important. Every gift is for the edification. But sometimes people with the spiritual gift of knowledge sometimes will study ad nauseum and wonder if it's going to make a hill of, of, of difference in any time. Absolutely it will. Absolutely will. And I need you talking to me or maybe our Sunday school teachers or maybe our Awana teachers and pouring into them some of the things that you found about particular subjects. In fact, people who have knowledge love a challenge, you know. I've really got a lot of uh, thoughts about what exactly was going on with those four creatures around uh, the throne of God in Revelation 4. Can you help me with that? Oh, goody, 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 goody. That's that person. Yes, give me a topic and let me tackle it to the ground and let me deal with it and work it out and bring you all these things about it. They love that stuff. And we need some of that so that our teaching is knowledgeable and thorough. It says here, number one, they enjoy study. They love digging for facts or details. They're also persistent and thorough. If the stone is left unturned, they can't sleep at night. They're thinking about it when they go to bed. Man, I wonder what was going on with that angel of the Lord appearing at that time and doing this. That's what they're thinking about. They're more task-centered than people-oriented as a rule. Now, we might frown on that because people matter. They very much matter. It's okay. Not everybody in the church is people-oriented. Not every spiritual gift gravitates us towards people. Does that mean we demean people? No, it just means that they're so focused on the task at hand, they're not really taking anybody's feelings or emotions into account for it. They're just the facts. That, that's it. They're, they're like the Joe Friday of the church, okay? Just the facts, ma'am. That kind of thing. Full-on dragnet. They tend to become impatient with people who fail to learn. That's one of the pitfalls. They get it. How come everybody else can't get it? Because everybody else doesn't have that spiritual gift. That's why they need the someone with wisdom or the exhortation to encourage people towards getting those things. Sometimes people need time to chew on what they've come up with. What they came up with in an hour, you might need a month because it's just a lot. It's deep. For them, it was easy. For us, it might be hard. That's okay. That's how the body of Christ is supposed to work together. They're very precise, very detail-oriented. They're patient. They stay with the project until completed in all its details. They continually are looking, searching for new information or data. They want to find out what do the smartest minds have to say about a particular subject and why do they see it a certain way. And they will also be the people that are very quick to point out the flaws of why it won't work because they have the Word of God as the standard of which they're measuring everything. It's really cool to see these people work. It says here they are enjoy talking with well-informed people. And that's up here, right? Well-informed people. That's, that's where you just kind of sit and listen, right? That's what I do. Anyway, uh, logical, scientific, and serious. Now, scientific means that they are going to try something over and over and over and over again so that it proves to be true as they've studied it out through the Word of God. And they also tend to avoid games or discussion on deeply personal matters. They might not have a sense of humor. We love them, right? It's okay. It's totally okay. Ray Stedman has written a book called Body Life. A lot of really great things went on in Palo Alto, California in the 70s. All of these hippies were getting saved. And it was a beautiful movement that took place over there. But it ended up changing the way that the church looked. And from everything that he saw that was going on at that time, he wrote a book called Body Life to reflect some of the things that were going on. And there's a quote in there. The gift of knowledge is the ability to perceive and systematize the great facts God has hidden in His Word. A person exercising this gift is able to recognize the key and important facts of Scripture as a result of investigation. Now watch this, because this is important. 
The gift of wisdom, on the other hand, is the ability to apply those insights to a specific situation. It is wisdom that puts knowledge to work. Okay? Does everybody see how the body of Christ has to work together in order for these things to edify? Sometimes we think, well, as you're you're exercising your spiritual gift, that's how you're edifying the body. Well, yes, but not to the maximum potential that we could if we were working alongside one another. That's the difference. It's when the body is working together with spiritual gifts that it becomes a dynamic demonstration of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we want as a church. That's what's pleasing to God. Now, let's see here. What else do we got? Moving forward. Let's see a couple of examples. I'll be honest with you. This was probably the hardest one that I've studied. Okay? Here's some examples, though. I was praying a lot about it, and I thought, man, this is so obvious. I don't understand why I didn't get this. But praise God that he's merciful. Turn to Luke chapter 1. Who is Luke? What do we know about him? What? He's a doctor. Now, stop for a second. Where's Roxanne? Okay, I love you, Roxanne. But, but we're going to have a conversation without Roxanne, okay? Listen. Are doctors kind of nerdy people? See, yeah, see, Jay will answer for the rest of you. They know a lot, yes? They've got to have really good critical thinking skills, really good response to here's a problem and how do I tackle it and deal with it? And they have to know a good, good amount about a lot of different things with something as complex as a human body. That's pretty fantastic to me. That's the gift of knowledge, people. And it doesn't make any, uh, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, it's no surprise that in order to write one of the Gospels, the Lord chose somebody who probably had this gift. Now watch what he does. Luke chapter 1, look at verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of these things accomplished among us. Now stop. Stop. Do you see it in verse 1? Do you see the gift of knowledge guy coming through? Look what it says. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of these things accomplished among us. What does that tell you that Luke's thinking but he's not saying? I don't think they did a good enough job. Everybody see that? Yeah, you got this guy writing and this person writing and they kind of chronicled this and this girl had this information and I interviewed this person. But I want to tell you what it's really like kind of thing. You see it come through the page, okay? Look what he says, verse 2. Just as they were handed down to us by those from the be- who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting to me as well. Now look at it. Here, here he is, word of knowledge guy. Having investigated everything carefully from the beginning. Does everybody see how thorough that is? We're going to start at the beginning and we're going to go through every little nook and cranny and make sure it's all set out perfectly. And it's not done till it's done, right? Is the kind of thing. He says, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know, and look at this, the exact truth. And everybody see that word know? It's not just having a knowledge of it. It's epigenosis. He wants Theophilus to have a hands-on, experiential, verified, and full knowledge 
of everything that pertains to the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. That's probably why Luke is considered the most chronological, in order, gospel. He wants Theophilus to know it and to know it well and to know it inside and out and thoroughly, like the back of our hand kind of thing. He says here, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Now, another interesting thing. What else did Luke write? He wrote Acts. Now stop. If you put Luke and Acts together, you have 27% of the New Testament. He wrote more in the New Testament than anyone, even Paul. He wrote more, okay? Turn to Acts 1. How does he start Acts 1? What does he want to tell us there that reveals his word of knowledge gift? Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. The first account I composed, what's he talking about there? Gospel of Luke, right? Just write in, Gospel of Luke right there. The first account I composed, Theophilus, same audience, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. What did Luke just do? If you want to know everything I covered in my gospel... Here is what it is, and on top of that, he taught them for 40 days about the kingdom of God, and that was it. And then in four, he begins, and he takes off exactly where the story left off. He goes back, and he gives you a detailed recap. He's referring to his previous hard work in order to prepare you to receive this massive 28-chapter history of the first church. Incredible. This is the gift of knowledge displayed. Now, another thing that I really appreciate is he's not the only gospel writer who had the gift of knowledge. Can anybody think of who else there might be? Paul? No, gospel writer. John? Well, come on, man. John's kind of spooky. Is he really? He wrote his gospel kind of late. He doesn't start like everybody else. He's got, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's, he's, in, the, he's in eternity. Who is it? It's Matthew. Why? It starts with a genealogy. Who else has a genealogy in their gospel? Luke. Luke 3, Matthew 1. Where'd these beautiful nerdy people come from, right? But why would they be? Now, now be honest. Be honest. Think for a second. How many of you said, you know what? I'm going to do a Bible study. I'm going to tackle a book of the Bible. And you opened up Matthew. And you looked at it. The first 16 verses. And you said, I wonder what's going on in Mark. Anybody? Yeah, you looked at that genealogy and you thought, not today, Satan, right? Because you knew it was going to mess you up. You're like, this is just, this person begot this person. I'm not going to get anything out of this. There's tons of beautiful stuff in that genealogy. But if we're not digging into, why did he put it there? What would have been the reason why he's doing all this? We never under, under, uncover those gems that he set forward for us. Look at Matthew real quick. In fact, I want to look at this. Go to Matthew 1. Actually, no, go to Matthew 2. We'll look at that one. That'll be better. That'll be easier. One of the reasons why we know that Matthew has the gift of knowledge, and other gifts probably, but the gift of knowledge primarily, there are 129 
connections in Matthew's Gospel to the Old Testament. 129. We're going to look at three of them. Uh, What is it? 53 of them are direct citations. He's got 76 allusions to the Old Testament. It's believed by some people, not too many. Some people think James was written first. But there are some people, and I think I believe this as well, that Matthew was the first book written of the New Testament. It's incredibly Jewish in nature. Makes total sense. Jesus was a Jew. What what does Matthew talk about predominantly in his gospel? Do we know? The kingdom. The kingdom. He brings it up over a hundred times in his gospel. What were the Jews looking for their entire Old Testament time? The king who would come and bring the kingdom. It's incredible. So he's connecting all this together, filling in the gaps. Let's see some examples of this. Chapter 2. And take a look at verse 16. It says, Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which had been determined from the Magi. That's a terrible thing to put down. That's a tragic thing to list. But here's the interesting thing. Matthew is concerned with the task in getting the information factual and right. So he includes it in there regardless of the emotion it evokes. But here's what he also does. Look at verse 17. Then when that event happened, look what he says. What had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was what? Fulfilled. So he quotes Jeremiah 31.15 and he wants to let you know what was spoken of five and six hundred years ago. Right now it's coming true. He's showing you how prophecy works. Look what it says. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. He is teaching us not just that prophecies were fulfilled, but he's teaching us how we ought to interpret it. Did this prophecy come true literally? It did. And so notice that Matthew is connecting that for us. So we see, using the gift of knowledge to systematize these Old Testament things and plug them into the real events that are happening in his day to show us how God is working and how God has always been telling us the truth. Look over at chapter 3, just down at the bottom there, if that's where it's at in your Bible. It is in my Bible. I shouldn't assume that on everybody. Verse 1, Now in those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Did this happen just like Isaiah said? Is this what John the Baptist is doing? Yes! Notice, he's plugging in the event and he's teaching us along the way. Here's how you understand prophecy. And it is to be literally fulfilled. You'd be surprised how many people have a problem with prophecies being literally fulfilled. Turn over to chapter 4, verse 12. It's the last one we'll look at here. Chapter 4, verse 12. Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Now, if you were to pull open your map of the New Testaments in the back of your Bible, would you see the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali in in that map? You would not. 
Why is that? Because in New Testament times, the region was divided up in Galilee, Samaria, and Judah, right? You got the Jordan River running along there. Everybody with me? Mediterranean Sea, all that. Okay, where do you find those regions are divided up? Which map do you find that? Old Testament maps. Why is that? Because when the children of Israel came into the promised land and the land was allotted and divided to them according to the inheritance that God gave them, they each had their own region. What's Matthew doing here? He's pinpointing a location so you have no confusion about exactly what's going on. And if he has to use Old Testament Jewish-minded boundary markers in order to do it, guess what? The word of knowledge guy has no problem pulling that card and putting it on the table. So he does. Look at verse 14. This was to what? Fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. This is from Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 and 2. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. Hopefully there's a big old L. Anybody got a big old L in their translation capitalizing light? For some reason my L is bigger than everything else on this page. That's really crazy. I wonder who typeset that. Some wacky guy probably. Anyway, and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them the light dawned. Who's the light? Jesus Christ. Notice that he is again pulling in Old Testament writings, prophecies, boundary markers, geography. He doesn't care. He wants to pull it on in and be thorough with it so you understand this is who we're talking about. Don't miss it. God's already told us it was coming. Now, I want to give you one thing that I think is incredibly helpful. I see this book. This is called Wilmington's Guide to the Bible. Okay? I took some pictures. We were going to get the Elmo. I thought that was going to be crazy showing up there. I got some pictures of it, okay? This is written by a guy named Harold Wilmington. He was one of my professors in school. The stuff in this book is insane. You, you can tell from how thick it is. This man has the, the gift of knowledge, the word of knowledge. Some of the pages that we have here. Going into it. This right here is a chronological order of the Bible. He wants to give you the years that are involved. The heading over that stage of life that's happening. Who were the prophets that were involved. What main characters you can expect to see throughout that. And give you some of the events that are going to take place. Like the destruction of the first temple. And the fall of Babylon that happens. The return stage. Getting into the New Testament. And he's got these crazy good news translation Pictures in there where the people have no faces, but the eyebrows are telling you what's going on. Anybody remember those? That was always a fun translation when I was a kid. Anyway, how about the next one? This right here is the first header page of the gospel, or sorry, the epistle of 1 John. And I love it because he gets it right. 1 John's not about how to test whether or not you're truly saved. It's how to tell whether or not you're in fellowship with your Lord. He goes through and lines all this out. What's the source of the fellowship? The purpose of the fellowship? Requirements of the fellowship? The test of the fellowship? The enemies of the fellowship? The family members of the fellowship? The maintenance of the fellowship? Some of you are looking at this and you're going, right? Some of you. Some of you are looking at this going, eBay, Amazon, thrift books. Where's it at, right? Plugging it in. Incredibly helpful tool. Not only that, next page. Look at this. The W of the Bible and giving you headings on each specific book of the Bible, he wants to teach you the theology at the same time. So he's going to have all of these headings, and you think that's small, good grief, it's super small. Uh, uh, The chronological, sorry, the cosmological argument for the Trinity. He's going to go through and explain to you all of those things. There's some apologetics in there. How do you defend your faith and know why you believe what you believe from the Bible? 
How about the next one? A topical summary of the Bible. You want to know about major events regarding abominations? Has that been on anybody's devotional list lately? (laughs) Guess what? He's got them logged out there. He's got 12 of them for you to research and meditate on. How about this? Accusations that are made. He's got those. Agricultural operations, allegories in the Bible, altars. Heading after heading after heading, passage after passage. Do we have any more? Is that it? Is that the last one? No, we don't have any more? Incredible resource. Some of us would look it up and want to throw up on our shoes. And that's okay. Some of us would look at it and say, you know what? This is probably going to bring a lot of clarity to the things I'm reading. Because I know God's not lying to me. But I just need some help figuring it out. That's why I find a tool like this so, so helpful. And what I understand, they have a 30th anniversary edition of this now. And it's actually cheaper than this edition. I don't know what they've done to it. Uh, but anyway... If you're able to find this, especially on eBay or something, dealoz, D-E-A-L-O-Z.com, I'm giving all my secrets away right now. Go there and type it in. It'll give you all the major online retailers and give you what the cheapest one is. Great book to have. Very helpful in Bible study. Can everybody see where that would be beneficial to you? Yes? Okay, good. Now, let's close with this. What are some pitfalls for the person who has the word of knowledge? What's some trouble that they could get into? Number one, arrogance. They know so much, they're going to let everybody know it, kind of thing. Because of such great learning, superiority sets in. What was the point of the, of, of the gifts? For the common good, right? For the edifying of the body. The second one might be the fact that they're insensitive. Sometimes not meaning to be so, they're just so concerned with the work that they forget about the people that they're working it for, who they're trying to minister and to build up into. Facts can be cold, so can the people researching them. But that shouldn't be us, right? Knowledge does what? Everybody remember it? Puffs up. But what builds up? Come on, we don't know that verse? 1 Corinthians 8, 1. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Okay, we all learned something new today, see? Love builds up. If he can't communicate his knowledge in love, what does chapter 13 tell us? It's nothing. It's no good. You might as well beating on a gong or smashing a cymbal. I cannot wait till 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to have some fun in here. It's going to be loud. So, how about the third one? A third one might be the fact of the danger of misapplication. Are these truths changing the one with the gift? This truth should be changing your life. This truth should be changing your life. And they're kind of all up in everybody else's business about what they spent time researching is supposed to change you. The question is, are they being changed by what they learned? Does it just remain so factual on the page that it's not relational enhancing fellowship with the Lord? That's a danger. And the last one here, they feel underappreciated. A lot of times. All their time, all their work, all their skill, investing and pouring into this to try to really make it something that's very, very helpful to the body of Christ and they feel like it was in vain because nobody said thank you. That's a danger. One of the things that helps guard against that, I mean, not only should we be charitable to one another and thanking one another for exercising spiritual gifts and building one another up, they need the person of encouragement to come alongside and and cheerlead and champion them on, absolutely. But one thing to remember, and this is the same truth with all of our spiritual gifts, we don't exercise our spiritual gifts so that everybody else will, woo, yeah, way to go you. Didn't come from me. Didn't come from you. Came from the Spirit in us. And so if we do work, we do it under the Lord. That's how we should understand that. Spiritual gift is knowledge. Uh, the spiritual gift of knowledge is important. Would you agree? Yeah, very helpful. 
Any of you that are Sunday school teachers, people who, who love digging into that stuff and really need that extra help, guess what? Our library is full of that stuff. You can come to my office and I will hand you stuff that you can take to learn from people who have the gift of knowledge and have systematized all this out for our understanding. I, I have no doubt in my mind that Mary Cooper would be chomping at the bit. Someone else with the word of knowledge, by the way. She would be chomping at the bit in order to help put resources in your hands to help encourage your spiritual gifts in light of how the gift of knowledge can benefit you. So let's take a moment, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you've gifted the church. We thank you that you have given knowledge, people who do the hard work, uh, the real nitty-gritty work of digging through your word with such uh, relentless pursuit and passion for it, uh, desiring to know you more fully and to make sure that what may seem like a paradox or is uh, a contradiction is, is smoothed out and is more readily understood. Uh, Lord, not all of us are like this, and that's okay. We don't need to feel inadequate whatsoever, but we do need to rejoice in the fact that you supply your body with those who can exercise that gift. Uh, Father, I pray that our hearts are appreciative of how the different gifts come to the table for our benefit, to be exercised for our health, and to encourage us into a greater intimacy with you. Father, I pray that you be glorified as we sing. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.